0: Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in the days as in days of old as in former years. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So we come this morning to the conclusion of Jesus' teaching here in the town of Capernaum. This, of course, the longest section of recorded teaching from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ given to us in the Gospel of Mark. Now, you'll recall that this all began with arguing among the apostles. They were bickering, fighting amongst each other as to which of them was greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, using this opportunity, he called them into himself. He sat down and he then began to teach them. He began to show them what true greatness looks like as he... As he touched them, bring them to a fuller understanding of what it really means to follow him. It is my prayer that by the working of the Holy Spirit that you too have come to have a greater understanding of what this life of discipleship is meant to be all about. That is my deepest desire for us as a people. That we would gather together in this place just longing to live lives of humble, self-giving sacrifice, service, love to one another. That our lives would not just be marked by some event on Sunday mornings, but that in every moment of every day We would have a burning passion deep down within us to give of ourselves to use the gifts that God has given us in service to our brothers and sisters giving absolutely no thought to whether or not the recipient Deserves what you are offering to them giving no thought to the cost that you must pay and giving no thought To how dirty or how demeaning the task at hand is the first Baptist Church of Crosby would be known as a people that is not just willing, but that jumps over each other to outdo one another and showing humility and honoring one another and laying down our lives for the sake of the gospel and placing ourselves last. As Jesus taught on that day, this is what it means to be truly great in the kingdom of God. This is what it means to earn a lasting reward that cannot be lost. And so in response to Jesus' teaching, the apostle John spoke up very proudly that he and the other men... They had seen a man there successfully casting out demons in Jesus' name. But because this man did not belong to their authorized little group, they had stepped in and tried to stop him. But Jesus tells them, no, don't do this. Anyone who is not against us is for us. Of course, Jesus was not widening the path to heaven. He was not preaching some form of universalism. What he was telling his apostles then and what he is telling us today is there are already so few people who will find the narrow gate. There are already so few people who will continue down the hard path that leads to eternal life. There are already so few people who will come to true faith and repentance in me. There are so few who are truly following after me. Don't you dare seek to restrict them further. Don't you dare place your own preferences in their way. Don't you dare refuse and oppose them simply because they don't belong to your little group or because they don't follow after me the exact same way that you follow after me. And then Jesus shifts and he begins to speak with very shocking clarity about the, tor- uh, the torturous, terrifying death that we deserve as those that would cause a little one that believes in him to stumble. He then goes on to warn us about the, to- the terrors of hell, about the wrath of God which awaits those who persist in their sin at the end of this lifetime. And he tells them, he tells us today that you must do absolutely whatever it takes to resist to flee from, to put barriers around your life to protect yourself against sin because it is sin that leads to this place of conscious, eternal torment called hell. Whatever you must do by the working of the Holy Spirit, you must fight. Stiffen your neck and fight. Resist sin at every turn because the consequences of failure are eternal and they are real. And now we return to that very same text this morning. It's my desire that we would would focus in on those last two verses there. Verse, Verse 49... In verse 50, and by the working of God and his spirit, he would bring us to even greater understanding of who Jesus is and who we are called to be in his kingdom. This is going to be the last of Jesus' teaching here in Galilee before he turns and makes his final trek towards Jerusalem, where he will be rejected, mocked, tried, beaten, and killed before gloriously rising again. So I invite you, please, to return to your feet in the reverence of reading of God's word. We're back in Mark 9 It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, we desperately need you. Your gracious hand to come upon us in these moments, Father, to open our eyes, to give us the ability to not only hear and see, but to rightly understand and believe and respond to the truth that we have read this morning. So we plead to you this morning, Father, do not allow our minds to wander. Do not allow the worries of the weak to settle in. Father, keep our eyes and our minds and our hearts firmly fixed on you. it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So as I said, we're going to focus this morning on verse 49 and verse 50. And as I pray that you have gathered by now, there is yet to be a Sunday morning where I stepped onto this platform feeling cocky. As a baby preacher that is still trying to find my legs, I need you to know that I wrestle with God's word with great humility. I show up each and every morning, Praying that God will do what only he can do. That when I speak to you, you don't hear the words of your sinful pastor, but you hear the words of your perfect, loving father. By the work of his Holy Spirit, he will overcome my frailty and my brokenness and my sin and my inability to understand. And I know that the only way that this will happen is if we stick to the word. That is why I spend every free moment I have, I need you to know this, every free moment I have in prayer and in studying this word, pleading with God to bring me to a deeper understanding that I could then show up and he could use me to speak to you his truth. There's not a moment when I step on this platform feeling as if I've got it figured out, feeling as though I am here and I'm going to now come and and, and just wow all you people with all the wonderful knowledge that I have. I come onto the stage trembling, knowing that unless God shows up and does what only God can do, it's going to be a train wreck. But worse than that, I'm going to dishonor him. Worse than that, I'm going to offend the living God. And so I need you to know that as I hit this stage, I hit this stage already exhausting. See, preaching is an exhausting thing. People will tell you that as you walk off, as you step off the stage, you are, you are mentally, emotionally, physically exhausted. But I need you to know that I hit this stage worn out because I've just spent the week wrestling with God, wrestling with his word. And I tell you all that because I pray that the same is true for you. I pray that every single one of you, you see the beauty, the glory, and wrestling with God and wrestling with his word, that you have that deep, burning desire deep down within your soul to not just read, not just hear, not just be able to recite, but to understand the words of your living God. It is my prayer that you too would wrestle with God, that you would refuse to let go until he gives you a blessing. That you would refuse to get up and walk away until he touches you and leads you to a deeper understanding, even if in that wrestling match you were left wounded and limping. That you would see how worth it, how much it's worth it to come to God in this way, to say, I'm not giving up, God. I'm not standing up, God. I'm not moving away, God. I'm not shifting to anything else until you show me what you mean in, your, in this word. Now, i say all that because this morning's verses, verse 49 and verse 50, They're incredibly difficult. These two texts, these two verses that are tucked in right at the end of Jesus' warning about the dangers of refusing to flee from our sin, they're pretty widely accepted to be some of the toughest verses in all of the New Testament to rightly interpret. As you study the commentaries, the diligent work of faithful, brilliant men who have devoted their lives to understanding and to helping us understand the Scriptures, Many of these men that have dedicated their entire careers to nothing more than studying the synoptic gospels, what you'll find is very little consensus as to what Jesus is talking about here in verse 49 and verse 50, and that's not a normal thing. Typically, whenever you study the commentaries, as long as you stick to men that have solid theology, men that have a a proper hermeneutic in the studying of God's word, more often than not, you're going to find that there's... There's pretty strong consensus as to what's being said in the Scriptures. And when there are differing opinions, generally it's limited to one or two, maybe, maybe three different opinions. But this isn't the case. As you study verse 49 and verse 50 of Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, you're going to find a very, very wide range of understandings, of interpretations as to what he's talking about here. And matter of fact, you'll find that in a couple of very solid commentaries, men that I turn to time and time and time again to help me understand what Jesus is saying, you'll find that they don't even make any comment at all. They say i refuse to give you my opinion on this i'm so terrified of offending god of twisting his words that's the text that we deal with this morning now there is an absolute meaning to what jesus has said here as i've tried to drive home to you it doesn't matter and no one cares what a verse means to you or to me all that matters is what the verse really means there is a true meaning to what jesus has said here and yet as we stand here this morning and we seek to understand what he said Some of you may have heard those words and immediately you thought, I got this one figured out. That's good. That's good. I'm I'm, I'm happy for you. Maybe you can tell me afterwards what Jesus is saying here. You can correct my sermon. Don't do that, by the way. I hate that. (laughs) Wait till Monday at least. But we would be quite arrogant and foolish to believe that our understanding has to be the right one, especially in light of 2,000 years of church history as men have wrestled with these verses and these brilliant, faithful God-fearing, spirit-filled men, even amongst themselves, can't come to a real consensus. So we approach this morning's text with absolute humility, trusting that if we come to God in this way, if we come to God trembling, if we come to God completely and totally dependent upon him, that he will work in this text. He will speak. He will transform us as a result of our encounter with this text, even if we don't get it all buttoned up. Even if we don't get all our eyes dotted and our T's crossed, that God can and will work through the wrestling of his Holy Word. Even as we sit in a gathering like this. How's that for a disclaimer? Your hopes aren't very high right now, are they? You're thinking, maybe you should have stayed home. It's cold outside, and I showed up to have a guy tell me, I don't have any idea what Jesus is saying. Now listen to me talk to you for 50 minutes about what I don't know that he's saying. This is the beauty of God's Word. This is the beauty of a faith family as we gather like this. So, it began like this, verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. So remember now, Jesus has just got done talking about how vehemently we must reject and flee from and fight against and put up barriers to protect against sin in our lives. Whatever the cost, we must fight against sin because sin leads to eternal damnation. Of course, Jesus is not here saying that you must be sinless or that you can be sinless. For if a man says that he, is not, that he has no sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. Every man will sin, and the standard for getting into heaven is not personally achieved sinlessness. That's not what he's saying. But rather what he is saying is that our ability to fight, to hate, to flee, to resist sin is an evidence that God is working within us. It's an evidence of spiritual life. It's an evidence that we've been truly brought to repentant faith in Jesus Christ. And it's an evidence that we are headed towards heaven, that we're truly following after Christ, and that we will find as a result of that that we will hate sin the way that Jesus hates sin. We will flee from sin the way Jesus has called us to flee from sin and that you will bow your neck and you will fight. That was my call last week. I pray that you got that. I pray that if you heard nothing else that I said last week, that as you stood from this place and you walked out in the world, you were ready for a fight. Not a fight with your wife, not a fight with your neighbor, not a fight with whoever it is that you count as your enemy out there, but a fight against Satan and against sin. Empowered by the Holy Spirit that you fought. You stood up like men and you fought. Because what he's saying here is that those that are just playing the games, Those that are just playing church, those that are just calling themselves Christian, they aren't going to fight. They're going to lay down. They may give up the appearance of a fight, but they're going to lay down. They will not truly resist the temptation to sin. They will not feel the real conviction of sin, and they will not endure. At the end of this life, they will find themselves in hell. And the way that Jesus describes hell here in verse 48, the end of last week's text, verse 48. He describes it here much as he has elsewhere as a place where worm does not die and fire is not quenched. So if you go out and you ask the average person on the street, what do they know about hell? I can almost assure you they're going to say something about fire. Even people that have never picked up the Bible, even people that know absolutely nothing about the gospel of Jesus Christ, ask them, what do you know about hell? They're going to say something about fire. So for them and for many of us, When Jesus says, everyone will be salted with fire, you immediately think about the fires of hell. And this makes sense because Jesus was just talking about the eternal fires of hell. So I'm going to assume that many of you, that's where your mind went. That's where my mind went. Whenever I read this text for the first time, surely Jesus is talking here about being salted with the eternal fires of hell. This seems even more likely to be a proper interpretation when you look at the fact that he began that sentence with the word for. He said for Everyone will be salted with fire. You see when Jesus begins a sentence with the word for it could also be translated as the word because But proper English doesn't allow you to start a whole bunch of sentences with the word because and so we use the word for instead I know this is technical grammatical type stuff But it really does matter because what Jesus is doing when he begins the second sentence with the word for is he is tying what he's about to say with what he has already said it joins those two thoughts together. And we know this in our everyday language, but we sometimes forget to hear Scripture this way. If this morning I looked at my little girls and I had told them, you need to put on a jacket for it is 30 degrees outside, they would have known what I meant. They would have known that the second thought, it was related to the first. They would have known that the second sentence, the one beginning with four, it explains why the first sentence is true. You get this, right? It's, they would have known that it was a, a subordinate that it was supporting the truth that was said in the first one. Do I have any English teachers in here? Y'all are probably, like, wanting to vomit right now. Am I good, Miss Lisa? Okay, all right, so. Good, yeah, very good. Somebody approves. Right, but that's what that word for does, right? It's tying those two thoughts together. You could say it in reverse, right? So I could say to my little girls, you need to put on your jacket for it is 30 degrees outside because it is 30 degrees outside. Or I could just flip it. I could say, it's 30 degrees outside, so you need to put on your jacket, right? So that when Jesus says this, grammatically, it seems like what he's saying. When Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire, you could if you want to just reverse it. You could believe that what he's saying here is, everyone is salted with fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. So, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, because two eyeballs don't do you any good in the burning fires of hell, right? Right? it seems very likely that what he's saying here when he talks about being salted with fire about men being salted with fire he's talking about the eternal torment the eternal fires of hell and if this is the case if talking about being salted with fire points backwards to the scripture that's come before it if talking about being salted with fire points backwards to the fires of hell then that word everyone must also point backwards right right That thought, it must all point backward to all that has come before. That word everyone must be talking about everyone that we read about in verse 43 through 48. All those people who refuse to fight against their sin and therefore are thrown into the pits of hell. Everyone, therefore, must mean all lost people. Everyone must be those that are lost, that lostness being evidenced by their refusal to resist, to flee, to fight against their sin. Everyone must mean everyone who is not saved. Now, again, there's plenty of people, they assume that's what this means. I, myself, when I first read the text, that's where my heart goes, that's where my mind goes. Many of really faithful, really brilliant, really smart preachers and theologians, that's where their mind goes with this text, and they hold to that translation. They stand and they preach that translation, and it may well be right. But here's where things get tricky for me, because what he says is, everyone will be salted with fire. So most everywhere that you see the word salt or you see reference to salt in Scripture, it's almost always a good thing. It almost always carries a positive connotation. And so there's some pastors, whenever they read this, they hear the combination of salt and fire, and their mind immediately goes to, okay, where in Scripture do I see salt and fire together? If you go all the way back to the book of Leviticus, to the law, what God has said is that every grain offering that is brought before me must be seasoned with salt and then fully consumed in the fire. And so their minds immediately go to, okay, this is a call to something good, a call to something positive, that we ourselves must be seasoned with salt and then offered in the fire. They go to perhaps to Romans 12, 11. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual worship. They believe that what Jesus is perhaps talking about here is something very positive, specifically offering yourself, the whole of yourself, is a pleasing sacrifice to God. We see the same kind of positive connotation in the New Testament. Whenever we hear salt talked about in the New Testament, we think about Jesus talking to his followers. He calls them the salt of the earth in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Or we hear Paul as he calls the believers in Colossae. He says that all our speech is to be seasoned with salt. And then in this morning's text, Jesus literally says in verse 50, salt is good. Have salt in yourself. So how does this work then? It's to be salted with fire It's to be thrown into the pits of hell. It's to be thrown into fire. How does that make sense? Because how can that salt be good? And how can he say to take this into yourself? How could he call his believers to take the fires of hell into themselves? You see my dilemma? Are you confused yet? We can't figure out which way we're looking. I I had a Boston Terrier one time that was a little off. It could look at two walls at the same time. That's a cool look for a dog, right? I feel like that dog. I feel like Rudy. The dog trying to figure out which way do I look here? Is, God, is Jesus drawing our attention back to the fires of hell? Is he drawing our attention forward to something that is good and that is right and is promised to his people? We don't know. That's the question. Which way is Jesus drawing us? Because it, to be salted with fire is something positive. It, to be salted with fire is something that the faithful disciples of Jesus Christ are to look forward to. Then this everyone must mean every true believer. He's not talking about all the lost. He's talking about every believer when he says everyone will be salted with fire. This, or some version of it, is the majority view amongst most, most men that I trust. Most good and faithful preachers, men that I continually turn to to help me understand the Scriptures, most of them hold to this, that to be salted with fire is some version of God calling his people to something good. Something good. They believe that Jesus has shifted here. Then in verse 43 through 48, he's talking about the fires of hell, and he's warning those that would not resist sin, those that would play the games of Christianity, that the fires of hell await them. And then he shifts. He says oh by the way while I'm talking about fire may I talk to you about good fire may I talk to you my disciples my followers about what it means to in a positive way be salted with fire every one of you all my disciples everyone who follows after me you should be salted with fire and salt is good so which one is it which direction are we intended to look when we come to this text So, I'll tell you that I come to it from a slightly different direction but I do so with great humility one of my very favorite professors and seminary, really my favorite professor, and there's not even a close second, is a guy named Jeffrey Bingham. And one of the things that Dr. Bingham says is that if you are the only person to ever hold to a certain view of a text, you are assuredly wrong. If you believe that you are the one dude in the 2,000 year history of the church to un- uncover some previously unknown truth that God has revealed in scripture, then you're almost guaranteed to be a prideful fool. Now I paraphrase what he said because Dr. Bingham despite being 6 foot 8 was much too gentle and kind to speak to us quite so harshly but the reality remains if you think you're the one dude that's found something that nobody in 2,000 years has figured out if you think you're the one pastor or the one Bible scholar or the one Sunday school teacher or the one lone Christian that's figured out this thing that God has is kept hidden from all of Christianity within his word for all these 2,000 years you need to tread very very lightly and so I don't come to this arrogantly believing that I've figured it out please understand I don't step onto this platform ever seeking to be cute. I don't stand before you ever seeking to wow you with some new discovery that I've made. I don't ever take a contrary position just to shock you into some type of attention. I study this word and I cherish it. I cherish the words of those that have gone before us. Learned men and women who have helped to form the way that I think, the way that I understand God's word. You need to know that there is almost never a time that I stand on this platform that I deliver unto you something that's altogether new. There's almost never a time when I deliver you some altogether new thought that has never been said in all the world. I believe that my job as a pastor is to take the truth that has always been, the truth that has been held through the church for 2,000 years and deliver it to you in a way that you can understand and receive and believe and respond to it. That's the job of a pastor. We merely stand on the shoulders of those that have come before us. But I must hold to a position with regards to this text that while it is not, not everyone rejects it, not everyone has a contrary position. It is in the extreme minority. So with regards to this text, I, I, there's a pastor by the name of Steve Lawson. I owe a lot of my thinking about this text to Steve Lawson. You may just go listen to his sermon. It's much better than mine, although we get to the point in a very different way, and frankly, our, where we land is slightly different. But he helped to form much of what I think here. And so when we come to this interpretation, everyone will be salted with fire. I think that our understanding has got to be driven not by what does he mean by salted with fire, but what does he mean by everyone. If we know who he's speaking to, then we know what he means by, to be salted with fire. So by my count, and yes, I counted, there are 1,196 instances in the New Testament where we read the word pass, which is translated every or all. Of those 1,196, only 84 of them are translated as the word everyone. Of those 84, some of them mean everyone, everyone. Like literally everyone, everyone without exception. Verses like strive for peace with one another. Uh, strive for peace with everyone. Honor everyone. Be kind to everyone. Seek to do good to everyone. Now those that are left, the vast majority of those, it's, it, when Jesus speaks of everyone or when the scripture speaks of everyone, they're speaking of everyone within a well-defined group. There, there's some qualifier to who qualifies as everyone, but they clearly identify who they are. It's given to us explicitly. You think about when Jesus is speaking to Lazarus' sister Martha. He tells her this in John 11:26. 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's saying everyone without exception within this group. Everyone without exception that meets this criteria. Everyone without exception, as I have stated, in this group, those are the ones that will receive this gift. Those are the ones that I'm speaking to here. We receive the same kind of thing in Peter's voice and Peter's speech on the day of pentecost is he's there and he's preaching that first sermon acts 2:21 he says everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved again he defines who is everyone who is allowed within this group of everyone from where there are no exceptions it's everyone who calls on the name everyone who calls on the name will be will be saved without exception there's no one who calls on the name of the lord who is not saved so almost universally, whenever we find the word everyone within Scripture, it's almost talking, always talking about everyone, everyone, as in literally, universally, everybody that's ever lived, or it's speaking about everyone within some well-defined stated group. You still with me? Somebody nod. I need you to know I texted the Harlins this week, and I told them, I said, look, if Brady falls asleep this week, don't you pinch him. This sermon is, I might fall asleep preaching this sermon. I don't blame the poor kid if he falls over. I I get it, but this matters, okay? This is the way we wrestle with Scripture. You don't know the insanity that goes on in my mind? This is it, right? Who is everyone? So this is, more often than not, this is what Jesus is talking about when he says everyone. This is who Paul, Peter, all the writers in the New Testament, this is who they're talking about when they say everyone, either everyone that's ever lived or everyone within a well-defined group. But what we see here, Jesus says everyone will be salted with fire. He provides no qualifying statement. He doesn't say everyone who flees from sin. He doesn't say everyone who continues in the rebellion. He just says everyone. So I have to believe that Jesus means literally everyone. Everyone who has ever lived. Everyone who has lost. Everyone who was saved. Everyone who continues in their sin. And everyone who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, resists their sin. Everyone who follows after me. Everyone who has never heard the gospel. Everyone. Every human that has ever lived. Literally everyone will be salted with fire. I think this is right. So what is he talking about then? Is this some kind of mixed metaphor? Is this just a couple of incomplete, nonsensical sentences that are are brought together? Or perhaps it's to be salted with fire. Is this just some innocuous thing, neither good nor bad. It's just a part of the human experience. I don't think so. I believe that to be salted with fire has a very different meaning depending on the spiritual position, the spiritual state of the person in question. You'll recall that last week we talked about the fact that those that even in death Even those that are cast in the pits of hell, that there is nowhere that you can go to escape the presence of God. That the righteous in Christ, they shall enjoy the blessed presence of God for all eternity. The lost, those that remain in their sin, they will suffer under the wrathful presence of God for all eternity. The question is not, will I remain in the presence of God? The question isn't even, will I remain in the presence of God for all eternity? The question is, what will God's disposition be towards me in that eternity? How will his face look upon me as he comes, as I am in his presence for all eternity? And I believe that a similar principle is at play here. Because all men everywhere will be salted with fire. The question is when and to what end? What happens as a result of this salting is going to depend upon our position, our spiritual state and our position before God. And I believe that, yes, the lost, The unsaved, those that persist in their sin, those who refuse to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, yes, I believe that for them to be salted with fire speaks to the eternal fires of hell. But you must remember that when we talk about the fires of hell, we're not talking about just some inanimate prison. We're talking about the personal wrath of God upon sinners. God isn't merely harnessing some fire that's already here in order to use it at his disposal in order to punish men. That fire comes from God. As a matter of fact, God says he himself, in his word, he says that he is a consuming fire. Think about the words of Moses talking about God in the book of Deuteronomy. Twice he says God is a consuming fire. In the New Testament, in Hebrews 12, we read that God is a consuming fire. And as a consuming fire, God cannot allow anything which is less than holy, anything which is less than pure, anything which is less than honoring to him to come into his presence. I believe that's what he's making clear here. That to be salted with fire is to take that which is impure and unholy, which cannot stand in his presence, to come into the fire of his holy presence. I think he speaks about this in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 22, 31 gives us a picture. I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord. So while on occasion in the Old Testament we would see as the wrath of God, the fiery wrath of God would be manifest invisible. visible physical fire you think about the days of sodom and gomorrah you think about the sons of aaron offering strange fire there you think about literal fire coming and consuming those that would dishonor those that would live unholy lives those who would seek to bring shame upon the name of the lord but we know that this points to a deeper spiritual reality the deeper spiritual reality is the fire of god's holy presence that man sinful man man separated from god he cannot come into the presence of god and see his glorious face and live he shall be destroyed The consuming fire of God will destroy all those that are not his. I think that's what we're reading about here. When he says, everyone will be salted with fire. For the everyones that choose to live in separation from him because of their sin, for those everyones, that fire shall consume them eternally in hell. That's why he says here, eternally, he says salted with fire. You see, in the days of Jesus, before refrigeration, this is the way that you preserved meat. You would pack it. We still do that today, right? You would pack it in salt. This is a way to make sure that it didn't decay or waste away. So the picture here is of being preserved by that fire, but not preserved for your good, preserved so that you do not waste away, completely wrapped and consumed by the wrathful fire of the living God. It's that which is unholy, completely surrounded by the wrath of God, and yet never fully burned up, never allowed to go away, kept intact, never ending day and night, night and day, in the fiery wrath of God. The torment that never stops, eternally. We covered this at great length last week. about the fact that the fire of God, it does not annihilate the sinner. To come into the fire of God, the eternal fiery wrath of God in hell does not mean to cease to exist. Men in hell wish that they would merely be burned up like a log and go away. They wish that there was an end to this torment, but instead, in that lake of fire, it is wave after wave after wave. Have you ever been trapped in the ocean? Maybe when you're a little kid and you got pushed down under the waves of the water and you thought, I'm never going to breathe again. I'm never going to come up. For those that are in hell, this is what the wrath of God comes upon them like. Wave after wave after wave as they out, Could I just pass out? Could I just burn up? Could I just go away? That's what it means to be salted with fire for the non-believer. But for the believer, for those that are found in Christ, The fire of God comes in a very different way for a very different purpose. Not the fire of his wrath and his judgment. Listen again to that text that I read at the beginning in Malachi 3. As God is speaking about, I believe, what we read here. Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. He's talking about Jesus here, the Lord coming into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. He will refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. He's like a refiner's fire. A refiner's fire that purifies, that cleanses, that burns away that which does not belong, that turns his people into what he has designed them to be. That the fire of God, that is going to destroy the perfect presence of the Holy God that when sinful men finally see that they're going to be consumed burn up suffering eternal wrath for all ever and ever and ever but for those that are his we will be refined the holy presence of God it will refine us and we've already had a covered so much time just getting to this point we're not even through with the first verse yet but you know what the refiner's fire is you're familiar with this picture is is one that with the refiner would take some metal takes metal and he puts it over a blazing furnace Now, it's not just going to be any metal. It's going to be a metal that's precious to him, a metal that's useful to him, a metal which he desires. He's going to take that metal, and already by hand or by hammer, he will have removed the big chunks, the big parts that aren't of the same substance, the parts that do not belong. But then he's going to take that, and over time, over that heat, he's going to bring it to a point, not to destroy it, but to melt it down, that thereby melting it down, he can skim off the impurities and throw them away. And it takes time, oftentimes many passes through the fire before he can so hone this thing, so, so refine it down to what he wants, something pure, something useful, something he desires by removing all of these impurities. And it takes time, and it takes fire. I wish we had time to do a full survey of all the times in the Old Testament we read about this, but Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Zechariah, Job, the Psalms, over and over and over again, what we see is that God's people continue to show their unfaithfulness, as they continue to rebel against God, as things which ought not be any part of their life continue to cling to them, as they continue to roll in the mud of their filth and idolatry and lust and every other manner of sin, God continues in his faithfulness to say, no, I will not destroy you, I will refine you. I will remove that which does not belong. I'm coming, not to destroy you, not to bring my wrath and judgment upon you, but as a loving act of care, I'm going to refine you. To make you pure, to make you clean, to make you that which I delight in, something valuable and useful to me. I believe he continues to do the same thing today. We read about this in the New Testament. Believers, as he removes our impurities, you know this. You have walked in this. As you look around at your life and you see things that don't belong in a pure child of God, that don't belong as a part of a holy servant of God, as he continues to come and he refines you, making you into that which is useful to him, that which is precious. That which can stand in the day and see His face—that's the reality here, and this is a preserving work of God, not to destroy you. It's the way that He preserves you. That's why He says that you would be salted with this. You need to understand it's the moment of your moment of your conversion, the Holy Spirit came upon you. He made you into something pure. He made the old has passed away, and something new has come. He made you into something that can stand in the presence of God because of who you are in Christ Jesus because of his atoning work, because of his perfect righteousness. And yet, because we continue to live in a sinful world, the impurities remain. We continue to lust after things we should not lust after, to entertain thoughts we should not entertain. And so we need to continually be refined over and over and over again. God brings us into this fire, continually melt us down, that he can remove, that he can skim off, that he can burn away anything that has no place in the child of God's life. We read about this with Peter as he talks about it this fire coming upon us in the form of tests and trials. He says that you can can endure these tests with great joy because you know that by these tests, God is refining you into something much greater than pure gold. He says that we shouldn't be confused when these fiery trials come upon us because we know that this is the work of God and making us into something that is much more useful to him, much more glorious to him, that brings honor to his name. James talks about how we should endure these trials with great joy because he knows that in this he's making certain that we are complete and lacking nothing. This is how God comes upon those that are his. This is what it means for us, the believer, to be salted with fire. For the non-believer, they will be preserved forever in the fires of hell. We might call that always dying but never dead, consumed but never used up. But for those that are his, for those that are joined through faith in Jesus Christ, we're preserved by his refining and his cleansing fire. And we celebrate him in this, as he makes us more and more in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We ought to, as followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to hate the parts of ourselves that don't look like him. We ought to look in the mirror, not in vanity. We ought to look in the mirror of God's word and say, God, show me what doesn't belong. Show me what doesn't look like Jesus, and then mold it, sculpt it, burn it, remove it. I don't care how painful this is. Knowing that God has promised to do this. It's only the glorious promise of God that allows his fire to come upon you in refinement and not to consume and to destroy you. It's all his gracious gift. It's only by the hands of God. You must realize this. That It is only the hand of God which holds you out of the fires of hell. It's only the gracious hands of God which snatches you out of the fires of hell. It is only because of the gracious work of God that he can come upon you in this refining way and not come to destroy you. Listen to the words of Malachi again, Malachi 3.6. For the I the Lord do not change. Therefore, you, O oh children of Jacob, are not consumed. The only reason you are not consumed by the fire of God is because his gracious promises. Because God does not change. Because God does not make a promise that he will not fulfill. Not because of your faithfulness. Not because of your righteousness. Not because of something you've manufactured in yourself. Because of the goodness of God, you are not destroyed. So that he comes today. The timing is different. For them the fires of hell wait them in eternity they can walk through this life feeling like they will never they've never been burned they have never suffered they're able to escape all manner of manner of torment in this lifetime knowing that eternal torment waits for them in the end and yet for us we will endure these fires today this cleansing preserving fire of god we endure it today so that in the last day we need not be consumed don't you see this is the same as what we talked about last week it's all about our position before god god doesn't change the question isn't does god change the question isn't, is God a consuming fire or is he like a refiner's fire? Yes and yes. The question is, where do you stand before him? With regards to your relationship with Jesus Christ, will the fire of God's holy presence, will it burn you up in the last days? Will it come in the form of judgment and wrath in the last days? Or will it come upon you as a gracious act of God and refining you today and molding you today? If you would allow me to take the analogy just a little bit further, we think about those that are his as he works in us, as he creates in us something new, and then he works in us to burn off all that doesn't belong. Slowly at times, but time after time after time, through these fiery trials, through self-discipline, through self-denial, through the working of the Holy Spirit, as he continues to mold and shape and burn off that which does not belong, a little bit at first, slowly at times, But in the end, completely and totally, so that we can then come into his presence completely pure and holy and righteous in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As he does this, as he works this, honing what is pure, removing what is not. We know that this is his work today. But for the non-believer, for those that are lost in their sins, those that are completely separated from God, there is nothing in them that can withstand the fire. Do you understand? What is in them that could withstand the fire? What is in them that is pure? What is in them that is holy? What is in them that is pleasing to God? Nothing. I know that it sounds cruel. I know that it sounds crass. I know that it sounds offensive, but you need to know that the non-believer is 100 percent dross and zero percent gold, just as we once were. Does this mean that they're as evil as they could be? No. Does it mean that they cannot do things which look good? No. What this means is it a part? From the transformative, supernatural work of the living God, there's nothing that can withstand the fire. There's nothing which will come out the back end. Again, the question is not who is God. God does not change. The question is not God's nature. God's nature does not change. The question is, what has he made you to be? What has he brought your position before him to be? What is his disposition towards you? Malachi would go on to say, Malachi 4.1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers, they will be stubble. The day is coming, then they shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. He's saying that the fire of God will come, it will burn them up completely, but those that are his, we will pass through. Praise God for the truth that he's continuing to refine us through these fiery trials. We continue to praise him knowing that even in this mild sufferings of today that God is doing a work, it's an evidence that he is doing a work. It's an evidence. It's an assurance. Because ask yourself the question, if God is going to do little bits of transformation in our life today, and it does feel like little bits, doesn't it? It feels like two steps forward and one step back or maybe two steps forward and a step and a half back. Feel like we're fighting against him at times. As we watch this work, as he continues to transform us, as he continues to refine us, it seems like it's baby steps. And we know there's got to be a big old jump at the end here somewhere, right? At the very end when we see Jesus and we are as he is. And finally, in that final, in that final moment, is this? I mean, it's just got to be leaps, right? We look back and we realize you weren't transforming us like 1% of the time. It was like a millionth of a percent. And now here it is at the end. What, why does he do this then? Why does he give us these baby steps along this lifetime if he knows how much is going to have to come at the end? It's because it's an evidence that we're his. You see? It's a gracious act of God. He says, I'm going to give you these steps. I'm going to continue to sanctify you. I'm going to continue to mold you. I'm going to continue to bring you into the image of my son, Jesus Christ. And every time we do this, no matter the pain, you need to know that's an assurance that you're mine. I continue to work in you to bring you towards that glorious day because you're mine. And we know that this is the desire. We know this is what we read in God's word, that this is the thing that we should, that we should desire, that we should long for. And yet, it's only human instinct to pull back because it's fire. Refining God of fire. It's still fire, and it still stings. It still burns. So it's our instinct to pull back, to avoid these trials, to avoid these tests, or to at times when these trials and these tests come upon us, to wonder, is God angry with me? Is this some form of punishment? And yet what we read in the Scriptures from Jesus and Peter and James and so many others is that we're to endure them with joy. Not because there is no pain there, because we know that through the pain, he is doing something great. Because through the pain, we have assurance that we are his. And we know there's simply no other way. No one gets stopped out. I'll make you a deal. Go ahead and get perfect, and then there's no more need for refining fire. But you will not reach that place. And so all throughout this life, continually, ongoingly, God will continue to refine you in this way. And because of this refinement, we know that he is preserving us. Okay, so 35 minutes, and we covered the first verse, so I hope y'all got a while. We're gonna speed up. We're gonna speed up. So verse 50, he goes on to say, Salt is good. Salt is good. It is helpful. It is profitable. Everybody knows salt's good, right? That's why everybody gets really, really sad when they get old and people tell them they can't have salt, right? Salt is good. We like salt. Salt is profitable. Salt is useful. Salt is helpful. Matthew 13, Jesus says, Again, you, that's the believers, you are the salt of the earth. Salt's a good thing because salt preserves. Salt preserves. You pack meat in salt. You pack things in salt. It's a preservative And that we as disciples, as followers, as representatives of the kingdom of God, we are meant to be preservative agents. We're meant, meant to be used as a preservative influence in a dying and decaying and petrifying world. As, as, as the world around us just waits away, as the world around us rots and disintegrates, we are meant to be a preserving influence on them. In addition to that, salt permeates. You know when somebody's added salt to a dish. Salt makes itself known. Salt has an effect on everything that it touches. That is meant to be us as royal ambassadors. Again, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The world ought to know that we're here. There ought to be something different about us. We ought to add some flavor to the world. This isn't being obnoxious. Nobody likes the guy that's obnoxious and big and and punching his Bible all the time and trying to go beat people up in their sins. That's not the picture, but we ought to be different. We ought to add some flavor to this life. The people around us ought to know that we're there, and they ought to know that There's something that's not like them in who we are in Christ Jesus. In addition to that, salt can serve to heal, but not without pain. You talk about rubbing salt in a wound. You ever wonder why that's a phrase? Like who in the world ever just runs up to some dude with a wound and rubs salt in it? It's because salt will dry it out. You know this when you go to the beach, right? Anytime you step off into the salty ocean water, if you've got any kind of nick or cut or anything, you immediately feel that burning. I remember when we went to Israel, I had... I suffer with psoriasis sometimes, and I had an outbreak on my ankle. And when we swam in the dead Sea water, buddy, I knew it. It was burning. And yet I knew that it was healing. It was drying that up. And so much like salt in that way, as we attempt to walk in holiness, as we seek to preach the truth of God's word, those around us with open wounds, they're going to pull back at the sting. Even though these words are healing words, even though these words can lead to eternal life, they're going to pull back. And I believe that Jesus had all of these in mind whenever he talks about the fact that we— Followers of Jesus Christ, those that are meant to be the salt of the earth, that it is good. Whenever he uses this as a metaphor, believers, he's saying all of these, I believe. But he goes on to say, if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Now, I'm not a chemistry major, and we don't have time anyway, but what I'm told by really smart people is that salt, sodium chloride, it's very, very stable. Salt doesn't really lose its saltiness. I'm not saying it cannot happen. i looked online. There's some science experiments you can do and stuff that can make salt lose its saltiness. But just naturally, salt doesn't really lose its saltiness. You can put salt in your pantry for a really, really long time, and you come back, it's still salty. But this is only the case if you're dealing with pure salt. Much of the salt in Jesus' name, it was mixed with other things because of the way that they brought it. And so as a result of that, if you had something that was impure salt, something that was mixed with impurities, something that was salt only in name And it was salt in name only. What you would find is it would lose its saltiness over time. So again, there's disagreement amongst plenty of faithful men. What does this mean? Who's he talking about? Is Jesus here talking about true believers and how true believers can lose their saltiness? They can lose their influence over the world. They can lose their ability to speak the truth. They can lose those distinctives that make us Christian. And as a result of that, they become worthless to God. That's what Alistair Begg thinks. That's what John MacArthur thinks. I think he's talking about the lost. I'll tell you why I think he's talking about the lost in a moment. But I think he's talking about the lost. I think he's talking about people that look like salt, but were never truly salt. I think he's talking about people who have all the appearance of salt, and yet over time they show themselves to be what they truly were. And I don't need to fully work out the implications for you in this. You know what I'm talking about. For the pure, pure believer, not pure by his own efforts, pure by the work of God, the continual refining work of God, pure because he's made us into something new. For those that are truly believers... That we will affect the world in exactly the way that salt is meant to affect the world. But for those that are not, while well, we will never lose our saltiness. Well, God will guarantee that we endure until the end. For those that are not, for the impure, for those that just look like believers but wander away in the end, for those that went out from us because they were never of us, because they've allowed the impurities of the world, bits of this world, love of sin, refusal to die of self, the idolatry of self, they will eventually waste away. They will eventually, with time, reveal that they were never truly salt. And as for them, there's nothing that can be done. How will you salt unsalty salt? That makes no sense, right? That's what he's saying here. There's nothing that can be done. I think this is very similar to the false believer that's spoken of in Hebrews 6.4. You'll remember that there we read about a man that's come into contact with the power of God. He's come to an intellectual understanding of the word of God. He's seen the working of the spirit of God, and yet still he turns and he walks away. For that man, there's nothing more that you can do to bring him back. There's nothing you can do in that man's, what are you going to do? He's already heard the word. He's already seen the working of the Spirit. He's already been with the people of God. He's already seen the power of God. What then are you going to do to bring that man back? I think that's what they are saying here. That a man who was given the appearance of salt and yet in the end wastes away and shows that he's something else, what are you going to do then? There's nothing you can do to bring him back. And so what we read in Matthew and Luke's gospel, when they talk about salt that loses its taste, they talk about it as being worthless, of being no good for anything other than being been thrown out and trampled underfoot, to be thrown onto the dung pile. I think the dung pile here points us back to the Gehenna. The fires of hell. I think he's saying, look, you're of no use to the kingdom of God if you're not pure salt. If you're trying to play this mixed game, if you're trying to hold on to little bits of the world while trying to hold on to little bits of Christianity, in the end, you'll be thrown out. Yet again, I believe Jesus is differentiating between the true believer and the false believer. Even the false believer that has all the appearances of being one, that the salt of the earth will remain salty. But those that try to play the game of salt, in the end, they will show that they were never there. And then Jesus finishes with this final exhortation, Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. saying, those of you that have been salted with this fire, those of you that have been purified through the ongoing work, as the trials of this life come and burn off that which does does not belong, you need to understand that you're the salt of the earth. Now go live like it. Don't just have external salts. Don't just have the appearance of salt. Take this into yourself. Let it fully permeate every bit of who you are. Being a child of God, being the salt of the earth, it ought to affect you internally as externally, completely and wholly. Your thoughts your desires, your emotions, everything about who you are ought to be affected by this. He's calling them to walk in purity and holiness. He's calling them be pure salt. And then lastly, he tells them, have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. You remember this began with the men far from peace, fighting with each other about who was the greatest, trying to resist a true believer that was doing the work of God. And he's saying, one of the ways in which you will be salty, one of the ways in which you will influence the world is having peace with each other. Quit fighting. And the only way that you will have peace with each other is as you are salted with fire, as you are transformed in the image of my son. That's the only way that we can come together. My time is up. I need to pray and close it out. But dear friends, as we come to the end of this teaching, as we come to the end of this lengthy teaching from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I pray that you see how how very divided he has presented this picture of two very different men. I pray that you see that there is no room in between. I know there are so many people that come and they sit in a pew on a Sunday morning, and this is a cold, cold Sunday morning. But I know that there's so many that come and they sit in a cold pew on a Sunday morning, they hear some scripture, they go to Sunday school, they have a, a donut, they go home and they believe they've done church for the week, and that's good. Dear friends, you've got to understand that what Jesus Christ has presented to us is a picture of two very different eternities, and what he's saying there is there is no in-between. You cannot come to church on Sunday morning and go live like the devil during the week and believe that somehow you will be saved. You cannot come into this church on Sunday morning. You cannot read your scripture in the morning. You cannot offer your prayers. You cannot feed the homeless. You cannot offer your tithes. You cannot sing songs of praise while continuing to entertain the thoughts of the world and somehow believe that you will be saved. Christianity is an all-in deal or it is nothing. Christianity is a whole life deal or it is nothing. So I plead to you at the end of this preaching from Jesus Christ, I plead to you if you have been playing that game, if you've tried to straddle the fence, if you've tried to live life the world while trying to hold on to Jesus Christ, give it up. You cannot do it. Turn today, repent, believe, continue repenting, continue to believe, and you will be saved. Do not, and you will die. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for this people. Father, this is not an easy text. This is not an easy sermon, and yet, Father, I sit amongst people who have a deep desire to know you to know your word and to truly and rightly understand it. Father God, as we seek now to preach your truth, to sing your truth, Father, excuse me, we seek to sing your truth back to you. It is our deepest desire that you would be glorified, that you would be honored by the words that come out of our lips and the meditations of our heart. Father, if there is one among us that is deceived, if there is one among us that is salt in name only, if there is one among us that has attempted to play the game of Christianity, Father, I pray that you would shake them loose and shake them loose now but, Father, above all, we want you to be honored and glorified in this place. Glorify yourself now. through your son's precious name we pray. Amen.